Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. So it's good to see you on Zoom. We are at home, sheltered at home like the rest of the country. And uh, I believe the subject today is going to be fasting and fasting mimicking diets. We're going to be talking to Dr. Walter Longo. Yes. And I know that you have been interested in fasting, but also have sometimes been a little doubtful about fasting. I'm wondering if you could tell our audience your thoughts. Well, I have been uh, fascinated by the growing attention in the scientific community and lay community intermittent fasting and about for resetting metabolism. And the challenge, I think, is to find a practical way of doing that. So it'll be fantastic to have our guest, Dr. Walter Longo, who is really one of the leading researchers, and he is going to take us through the various kinds of fasting and some of the research he's done on something called fasting mimicking diets. Yeah, which looks to me like the most practical taking advantage of the benefits of fasting. All right, let's go to Walter. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Walter Longo. He is the director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California, and he also directs the Longevity Center and Cancer Program in Milan, Italy. He's written a bestseller, The Longevity Diet, and really he's perhaps one of the best-known researchers around the world looking at fasting. Hi, Walter. We are so delighted to have you on our show. Many of our listeners will be familiar with fasting from a religious perspective. In the Jewish religion, people fast for up to 25 hours on Yom Kippur. Ramadan has a fast that goes from dawn until sunset, so it varies depending on what month it comes out, but usually 11 to 16 hours. Uh, people fast on Lent, and that's a very different fast. That's giving up meat, uh, whereas the, the Jewish fast is nothing, no food, no water. So when you think about fasting, what does it mean? <clears throat> well, I always say that fasting, uh, it's, it's kind of like saying eating doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's being used very loosely like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's say that the, the main uh, methods, uh, fasting-associated methods, are what's called uh, time-restricted eating, mm -hmm. which uh, refers to anywhere from 12 hours of, of water-only fasting to about 16, 20 hours, right? The mm -hmm. most you see usually is about 20 hours. And something else is called uh, alternate-day fasting. Alternate-day fasting uh, is just that. Eat one day, don't eat on the other day or have a low-calorie or very low-calorie diet on the alternate day. And then uh, there's something called 5-2. There are different, different versions of that. And the 5-2 refers to either one day a week or two days a week. I mean, two days a week of either consecutive or non-consecutive uh, fasting days. And it could be, again, fasting, or it could be, let's say, 500 calories of different composition. And then what we've been focusing on is uh, uh, what we call periodic fasting, and or fasting mimicking diets, uh, which is something that you don't necessarily have to do in an intermittent uh, fashion, but it's uh, more on a need-to-do-it basis. So you do it uh, uh, when you need to do it, and that refers to longer periods of fasting. It could be uh, two, three, four days all the way to a one week, at least in, in the way we've been testing it clinically. We started with uh, cancer patients with water-only fasting and then moved to uh, uh, fasting mimicking composition, which I'm assuming we're going to talk about. 
Yes, we will talk about it. Andy, I know you've experimented a bit with fasting. Can you tell our listeners about your experience? Yeah, it goes back a long way. In the 1970s, I experimented with water fasting for several days, especially to see what the effect on consciousness was. So I would do a three-day water-only fast. And my initial experience was that on the second day, I really felt awful, both mentally and physically. And on the third day, I felt great, just really high, and my mind worked at peak efficiency. You know, very interesting. Uh, but then I found it very difficult to come off of that in a sensible fashion, and I would find myself overeating tremendously at the end of it. Then uh, I'd appear somewhere in the, I think, uh, early or late 1970s, I was in a pattern of fasting one day a week. So that meant, I think I did it on Mondays, I would have water only. And that just seemed like, a, to me, a good discipline. I think I did it mostly as a spiritual discipline more than for any physical effects. Uh, as the information began to come out about the benefits of intermittent fasting, uh, I was very fascinated by that. I had a number of friends who were doing it and reporting great effects with it. I tried various schedules of doing it. You know, first, compressing my period of eating to six hours uh, or eight hours. The problem is I, I would find myself ravenously hungry when I did eat, and I would probably eat more than I would normally would if I weren't doing that. So that just didn't work. I tried other schedules, also had the same problem. Uh, but I've been very interested in the possibility of fasting mimicking diet. So uh, that really drew me to, uh, to Bader Longo's work. Um, so from an evolutionary biology perspective, what's the role that fasting plays? Yes, um, fasting has been around forever, right? So th from the very beginning, you know, we, uh, most organisms on Earth are starving all the time. And once in a while, they, they, they get lucky and they get some food and they go back to starving. Now, this is true for most bacteria, for most microorganisms. Uh, and this was also true for us. You know, most likely we got food once in a while, probably periods during the summer where we had food all the time. But uh, then we certainly, uh, almost undoubtedly, most of, of our ancestors had long periods of, of starvation very frequently. And they could be fairly long periods. You know? So, for example, uh, we, we believe that the summer was the moment where you know, the uh, insulin resistance was generated and fat will be stored so that then you could get through the winter using the fat stored during the summer. And now we're forgetting uh, these, uh, uh, these evolutionary issues. Uh, we come from, from a, a starving world, every organism. This is how I got started with, with fasting because I was starving bacteria and they were living a lot longer. I was starving yeast, the baker's yeast, and they were living a lot longer. And they also became very strong. You could hit it with, hit it with uh, uh, toxins and they would not die. Uh, and that's when I thought if bacteria, prokaryotes and eukaryotes have this, this in common, this must be really about all organisms. And, and sure enough, I think, uh, I think it was. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast.
So I think a lot of people have that challenge that they don't feel great when they fast. I mean, I know people who they love to fast and they say things sometimes like, oh, I forgot to eat. I never forget to eat a meal. You know, <laughs> I'm hungry at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so fasting is not easy for me. And I often feel weak when I fast. And yet I certainly know people and I sometimes think they're the vata type from the uh, tradition of the Ayurvedic. They're tall and thin and airy, and they just seem to have a really easy time with fasting. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, Walter, what your experience has been with people's ease or difficulty. And I know it's the difficulty side that had you develop the fasting mimicking diet. So maybe you could address both those. Yes, it's the difficulty side, but also the safety side and compliance. So when we first started, uh, oh, you know, 10, 12 years ago with the clinical trials on, on cancer here at USC and uh, fast, water-only fasting and, and cancer, we, realized, we thought, uh, of course, everybody's going to do it, even if they have a possibility of doing better, having less side effects. And we were wrong. Uh, nobody wanted to do it. Uh, and the oncologist struggled uh, to get people uh, to, get, to be on it. And so, yeah, we went back then to the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, and basically asked for funds uh, to develop a fasting mimicking diet. That was a very good idea, again, both for compliance and safety. Now uh, we publish a number of trials on, on this, and this year we're going to publish uh, three or four more. And uh, the compliance, if done with a registered dietitian in the cancer uh, setting, is let's say the minimum we see is 70, 80 percent, uh, all mm -hmm. the way to 90, 95 percent compliance, even going uh, many cycles. And the other thing is safety and the, and the uh, you know, let's say lean body mass loss, the loss of muscle. This has been uh, at the beginning it was a true war with the oncologist, but uh, then I think they realized that you know, there was a lot of science there, and we were uh, trying to address exactly that. We didn't want anybody to. Uh, to become cachectic and lose muscle mass and, and become frail. And sure enough, now we are about to publish that. That's, uh, that's not the case, uh, meaning that patients, even if they're doing all kinds of uh, cancer therapies, going from chemotherapy to immunotherapy to uh, hormone therapy, they can maintain a normal weight. Now, sometimes we do exclude uh, uh, patients from the trials because they do lose weight and they cannot regain it. The, I would say a very small uh, percentage of patients were in fact we were surprised how, how, how small it has been uh, uh, so yeah so for those reasons i i think it's uh, good to start thinking about standardizing fasting in a way that the medical community i mean fasting as dr well knows has been around for a long time and and even in the medical community every 50 years or so it, it, mm -hmm. it, uh, it arises and then it disappears right and <laughs> And it disappears because uh, you see as many benefits as, as uh, problems. So I think it, it's really important uh, to standardize it and, uh, and to test you know, specific uh, fasting-mimicking diets uh, in, for specific purposes. Well, I've been uh, fascinated by the literature on a very successful treatment of autoimmune conditions with long-term water fasting. Uh, you know, really interesting reports of total remission of rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, uh, some forms of asthma on long-term water fasting. Obviously, it has to be done under supervision. And the problem is that the conditions tend to come back, you know, once eating is resumed. And the question is whether you could find some way of transitioning from that. 
uh, that would maintain the remission. Yes, so that absolutely. So unfortunately, those trials always show if uh, first of all, let's say you do two or three weeks of, of water only fasting, that's extremely tough, mm-hmm. and most uh, uh, prof- most doctors will tell you that should only be done in a clinic, which then makes it very expensive. Yep. And now, so the recommendation would be go to a clinic, do two or three weeks of this, and then it's going to come back anyway. And so, you know, and this is, as you know, old studies. This was published in yeah, Lancet, right. uh, you know, 30 years ago or, or whatever. Uh, and then it never made it into mainstream medicine. Mm-hmm. It was because, uh, A, there was no, no idea. Um, and in fact, I think it was mentioned in the paper, this is likely to come back after you, you uh, finish the diet. So, yeah, we try to turn that. Now we've, we finished a, a trial on multiple sclerosis with the FMD fasting making diet. Now we're doing uh, three or four more trials. Stanford has just started with IBD and the fasting making diet. And, you know, we have multiple sclerosis uh, and other uh, conditions. So hopefully rheumatoid arthritis will also be in our, uh, one of our targets. And uh, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, the, the idea would be, let's say, in our trial, we do seven days of a fasting mimicking diet uh, that comes in a package and the patient will do it every two months. Uh, so it's every day, every, every two months. So if that worked and it kept the, the uh, autoimmunity in check, uh, then it, now it becomes, I think, reasonable and feasible for lots of patients. Maybe not everybody, but certainly uh, lots of the patients that have these conditions. Can you help us understand how you formulated the fasting mimicking diet. I I will um, tell our listeners that um, I did it and I found it much, much easier than uh, water fasting. Of course, it's structured, so you know exactly what you're going to eat. But is it that it's low calorie? Is it that it's feeding a certain part of the microbiome? How do you explain, one, how you put it together so it actually mimics not eating at all, a water fast, and two, um, what you think the mechanism is um, by which it's having this effect on the uh, immune system. Yeah, well, yeah, so first of all, believe it or not, the foundation of this is, it goes back almost 30 years to the days where I was with Walford and, and Steve Clark mm-hmm. at, at UCLA and, and looking at starving bacteria, starving people, uh, starving yeast, and and so it, it, we realized a long, long time ago the connection between certain nutrients and certain genes, right? So, for example, certain amino acids and TOR, acid kinase, uh, certain amino acids and, and growth factors like IGF-1, growth hormone, uh, certain carbohydrates, specifically sugars, and PKA. So I'm just throwing out names, but mm-hmm. these are names of uh, what we call, what we are now uh, viewing, not just me, but many of us, as master or central regulators of aging. So what does that mean? Like, for example, these protein response pathways, these genes that respond. So if you eat lots of protein, IGF-1 levels will go up. And now this IGF-1 is recognized by many of us as a central regulator of the aging process to the point that if you knock out the growth hormone IGF-1 axis in mice, they will live 50% longer but uh, more importantly, they will have much, much lower level of diseases, right? So mm-hmm. they live longer and they have less diseases. And then in our studies of, of uh, people in Ecuador, they have the same type of mutation. So they, they, uh, it, it's almost like if they never ate proteins, but they, of mm-hmm. course, they eat proteins, but they don't have the genes that respond to them. Uh, and they're very much protected uh, uh, from cancer, diabetes. So far, we and others in Europe uh, have shown these effects. So, so this is, seems like this 
um, uh, genes that regulate aging, regulate aging in simple organisms, also regulate aging in humans. So, anyways, the diet, the formulation is based on, on, on the understanding of this. So, how do I regulate growth hormone, IGF one, TOR, PKA? You know, what's the kind of what's the formulation that's going to do that, and how do I do it in in a way that is feasible uh, and in a way that promotes also other changes, for example. Uh, microbiota, uh, you know, the, the growth of lactobacillus bifidobacteria in the gut. So, um, how, do we, uh, how do I also make sure that the patients don't become hypotense, hypoglycemic? So we've been thinking for, for decades about a lot of issues that we try to solve. And so the, the end result should be you get a package, uh, you know, with or without the physician, maybe a registered dietitian follows you, uh, and uh, in the great, great majority of people will not have uh, side effects and will benefit from it. And also while minimizing the burden of having to do a water-only fasting. I've done water-only fasting once, and uh, I think it's the last time I... I I'll, I'll, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I really struggled. And uh, so I, I remember there was maybe, you know, 10 years ago, I said, I'm never going to do this again. And I... It, it really, I remember every part of it. And, yeah. you know, and of course, people, some people do it with no problems. You know, so I'm not mm-hmm. saying that everybody's going to have that reaction. But yeah, I would say lots of people uh, would, would struggle with, uh, with water on the fast. The food mimicking diet has lots of regular things in it. I mean, there's soups that are made from vegetables and there's nuts in a bar. So it's you know, it feels like things you'd see in a, in, a, in a regular, maybe healthy diet, obviously lower total volume and lower calorie than one might normally consume. But somehow you're saying this particular mixture alters the microbiome and is a low enough load that it alters the immune regulation. Yeah. So for example, if you look at our, our recent mouse study, and I also included a clinical component, but we compare, we had an IBD, inflammatory bowel disease uh, uh, model, right? So we, we give severe inflammation to the mice, intestinal inflammation to the mice. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at water-only fasting together with the toxin, the gut of the mice becomes even more leaky during mm-hmm. fasting. And it makes sense, right? The fasting, uh, basically the, the signal to the intestine is, there is no food, so you don't need to be as uh, densely populated mm-hmm. with cells. Mm-hmm. But with the fasting mimicking diet, we didn't see that. We saw mm-hmm. uh, a, a higher degree of protection, and we saw also re- um, stem cells being uh, increased in the, in the gut and inflammation being decreased. So it seems like the FMD is uh, giving fuel prebiotic ingredients to the lactobacillus bifidobacteria and is allowing, is also giving a signal to the gut to not, don't, over, don't overdo the breakdown mm-hmm. process because there's still food here. Uh, so, yeah, so that was important. And where do the ingredients come from? You know, the ingredients also come from uh, Andrew Weil's book. And, uh, and certainly, I, I made it a point in, in uh, uh, having a common denominator. So, you know, if you look at epidemiology, if you look at the centenarian studies, if you look at the basic research on longevity, what are some of the ingredients uh, that we keep coming up as positive? You know? So then, then the effort was made, let's pick only ingredients that are uh, clearly beneficial to longevity and health span. That was a good idea because some of it we didn't learn until later. So for example, 
the FMD was formulated before showing that, in fact, the lactobacillus and, and some of the, the protective micro, uh, microbes uh, would benefit from those ingredients. Andy, um, you've talked about the possible downsides of having a really robust immune system. And we're certainly seeing that with coronavirus when people have cytokine storm. Do you think people should be fasting now? <laughs> I'm glad I you asked know. him that question. <laughs> I don't get it. Right. Walter, what do you, well, let me, let me make a comment first. You know, clearly the 1918 flu was even more provocative at, at uh, causing a cytokine storm and most people died of that, and that selectively killed young, healthy people that had the most robust immune systems. So we're not seeing that with uh, COVID-19. But I think in that kind of situation, you would want to down-regulate the immune system. Uh, and this, it makes me nervous when I hear people casually talking about boosting immunity and enhancing immunity without realizing that there's a downside to that. Um, but I'd like to hear Walter's opinion. Maybe you know, fasting and fasting-mimicking diet modulates immunity in a desirable way that would protect you. Yeah, so in, in mice, it definitely does. So we also receive uh, grants both from the NIH, from the NIA, and from uh, a foundation in Italy to do the clinical trial for, uh, for the flu. Right? So a response to the, the flu vaccine uh, but we, we haven't started the trials, either one of them yet. So, so we don't know. And, and I think that's the answer. Uh, we don't know because as, as Andrew pointed out, if you have a inflammatory response that is too high, you could have a problem. Uh, now with coronavirus, you know, the problem seems to be this pneumonia and what are the reasons for that? And then what do patients actually die uh, from? Do they die from sepsis? Uh, do they die from uh, from the inflammatory response? Uh, so I think it, it just we need a lot more, um, you know, uh, people looking at clinically and preclinically at uh, this specific virus. And uh, I hope we come up with a system that's much more rapid, so that you know by the time everybody's infected, we already have a solution rather than talking about the next two or three years. Mm -hmm. A practical problem at the moment is that with all of us in lockdown, overeating seems to be the major problem. <laughs> and I know several people who have been doing intermittent fasting have given it up in the past few weeks because they, yeah. they find it very hard to regulate their food intake. Yeah, so uh, the recommendation has been uh, if you're at home, you're isolated, you, you have really low exposure, low chance of being exposed, let's say you can stay yeah. home for the next week, then I think the fasting-making diet is a very good uh, or other types of, of, let's say, shorter fasting is a very good time to do it uh, and to also counteract the, the uh, counterbalance any overfeeding that most people are doing at home. So, but, I, but I would say medical personnel or anybody that has somebody infected around, I would tell them, no, don't fast. It's not, not a good time. To, I mean, there is, a, there is a slight decline in white blood cells when you fast. There is a, some type of redistribution. There were recently several papers that, uh, in, in the journal Cell, looking at the tremendous effect of, of, uh, of fasting uh, following our own papers, a number of our own papers, but uh, they confirmed this tremendous effect of fasting in redistributing all kinds of uh, immune cells. So some cells go from the periphery to the bone marrow, some cells do the opposite, some cells die, some stem cells are, are setting up, hematopoietic stem cells are setting up to generate new white blood cells. So it's a very complex uh, uh, set of changes, and I think, you know, luckily we are funded to test this clinically, so let's see what happens in this, uh, in this uh, flu trial, and hopefully as soon as there is a COVID-19 
in uh, vaccine, then we're going to do the same with COVID-19. So we do the, the two cycles. This is in the summer, two cycles of the fasting-making diet, followed by the vaccine. And then we look at the antibody formation, the antibody titers called, and then we follow the actual infection rate. You know, do they get the flu? And, uh, and then so, if so, how, how bad is it and what are the consequences? I have a question I'd really be interested to hear your opinion on. It's a little bit off the subject. You mentioned that you had studied with Wolford. Uh, you know, Roy Wolford, I knew him well when he was sealed up in the biosphere here. And he was a major proponent of caloric restriction. Practices himself and predicted that he was going to live to some you know, great age. And he died far short of that degenerative disease. I, at around the same time, I had seen a, a, a number of patients that caught my attention of fairly young ultra-athletes who had ALS. So early onset ALS and relatively young people who were extreme sizers had no body fat. And it made me wonder whether, you know, I'm, with caloric restriction, I'm sure you get great improvement in cardiovascular health. And maybe that's the major gain that extends longevity. But I wonder if that's at the possible expense of neurological. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the, the big disadvantage that Roy had was that it was too early for the molecular biology, it was too early for the genetics, et cetera, et cetera. We had a huge advantage, you know, because, uh, you know, having the genes uh, and having, for example, know that we did this both in mice and humans, these genes that I was just talking about mutation in the growth hormone pathway, they improve cognitive function in both humans and mice. So we looked at the, these Ecuadorians with growth hormone receptor deficiency, and they were cognitively younger. They were about maybe 10, 15 years younger. Really impressive. And the mice very much cognitively improved. Now, if you look at the fast mimicking diet, our first publication was actually showing that improvement in cognitive uh, delaying in cognitive decline in the mice doing the FMD Pretty soon, we're going to publish on humans uh, on the FMD with fMRIs. Yeah, so if anything, that is one of the things that we hear from people. My cognition, I was so much clearer. I could remember things better. Uh, I was much sharper. So uh, yeah, we have seen that. Now, this is very different from calorie restriction. You know, this is why I never, I never, uh, I mean, I learned a lot from, from you know, being in Walford's lab for, for two years. But I never worked on calorie restriction because I was there in Arizona when they came out of uh, a biosphere too, and they looked terrible. They and, looked terrible. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there was, you know, I would just I just got started in the lab uh, a year earlier, I think, and I thought this doesn't look promising. You know, <laughs> it just looks like uh, you know we have to find a way. How do we get all the benefits without causing all the problems? And like you say. The fats, and we see this also in mice. I mean, mo most people don't know that about a third of the mice genetic background, if you take all kinds of genetic background, about a third of them will benefit from chronic calorie restrictions. So, so let's say eating 25, 30, 40% less mm -hmm. all the time. So a third of the mice will benefit greatly. A third will get no uh, neutral effects, and a third will die earlier, right? And the dose that died earlier seems to be the seem to be the one that have uh, uh, less uh, fat storing capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so this is also consistent with the idea that people that have a little bit extra weight in their seventies and eighties they tend to do better. Right? They're mm -hmm. not not morbidly obese, but those that seem to have say a BMI of twenty six. Mm -hmm. It's not so bad for older people. Yeah. So absolutely, a calorie restriction. 
was a pioneering intervention, very interesting, but uh, we're com- in a completely yep. different world yep. when we do yep. FMD. Yep. And in fact, we recommend the, the prolonged uh, FMD maybe three times a year for five days. So this would be, you know, 15 days in the entire year. Right? So, uh, and I say, you know, people, sh- if they don't need to, they shouldn't do it more than that. This is not about I do it as much as possible so I get more benefit. You do it three times and that's it. Unless, you know, you have diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now we have you know, four clinical trials on diabetes right now. We'll, we'll see soon enough uh, what the results are. But, you know, we already have di- data on, on pre-diabetes and it worked very well with the pre-diabetes patients. So, yeah, so I think that that is uh, the way to do it is that don't, don't overdo it. Don't do what Walford did, you know, don't push yourself mm-hmm. to the limit. And also the monkeys, if you look at the calorie restriction studies um, in monkeys, both in Wisconsin and at the National Institute on Aging, the benefits on overall mortality, you know, so how long did they live, were not that good, you know. Uh, now they had, the, uh, in Wisconsin, it, the monkeys that were calorie restricted all the time, they had a tremendous effect on diabetes, tremendous effect on, on cancer and cardiovascular disease. But overall, uh, lifespan uh, was, not, uh, was not that much longer. And in uh, in the NIA, the National Institute of Aging, there were no diff- there was no difference in uh, in uh, longevity, right? So yeah, so uh, I think we need to move from that to where we're going. And by the way, I don't make a penny out of all of this. I I, I donate a hundred percent of everything to to charity and to research. Uh, so I want to make sure people know that I'm not advertising some. Pro- in fact, I don't even take consulting from from any company related to this. Well, that's great to hear, Walter. I think that's very sensible advice, and it feels very doable, unlike the other systems that I've seen out there. I do think it's doable to do something, you know, two or three times a year where you are, um, you know, changing your habits significantly. Any gender differences, men versus women? Very little. Uh, some, yeah, some. I think we're going to start, we're, we're going to publish uh, later this year another trial on hypertension and, uh, and prediabetes on diabetes. Uh, and I have to say, uh, there are some differences, but they're not nothing significant or just in a few cases. But overall, I say we measure like 100 different things. And most of them seem to be fairly similar between male and female. Uh, but as we get more and more data, I think we're probably going to see uh, we're going to see differences uh, sex specific. Do you find that following a fasting mimicking diet ends up changing people's relationships to food? Yes, yeah, so this is one of the most impressive things that we see uh, with lots of people. And it may be in part because it's only five days. And in, even in the clinical trials, we, we give them this box, they do it for five days, and we give them no uh, rules about the rest of the time. And we see that most people, especially if they do it after they do it two, three, four times, uh, then they begin to say, I am a completely voluntary uh, in a completely voluntary manner, starting to change my habit. For example, if I never ate vegetables, now that I've been exposed to, let's say, 15, 20 days of this vegan diet, I am more, much more prone to, to appreciate uh, uh, eating more vegetables or eating less meat, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say the great majority of people eventually undergo this process of change. And, you know, in, in, in science, there is something called food aversion. So when when the patient may become, may reject a certain type of food because they associate that food with uh, some pain. For example, chemotherapy, right? So if you com- combine chemotherapy with a certain uh, food ingredient, eventually you might become 
you may reject that ingredient. We're starting to think that maybe the opposite, that you now have certain vegan ingredients that make you feel a lot better. And if you never had those and you, you start you know, eating more uh, during the, the, the prolonged FMD, now you eventually your brain is, is telling you, I need more of those because I felt so much better when I was under those. So a closing question. You are both really passionate about healthy aging. And besides fasting or a fasting mimicking diet, I'd love to hear from each of you uh, some practical recommendations that you could give to our listeners about um, how they can live a long, healthy life. Andy, let's start with you. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have always cited the MacArthur Foundation's report on successful aging and the two uh, factors, common factors that they found in the population that they studied uh, were maintenance of physical activity throughout life and maintenance of social and intellectual connectedness. Uh, so I think in addition to sensible nutrition, uh, I would say those, those two are really important. And it seems like during this time of the coronavirus, certainly social interactions being challenged. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I usually have, you know, the, my, uh, my recipe. And, and uh, again, I, I like to, to use the, the five pillars of longevity, you know, epidemiological study, clinical uh, basic research, centenarian study, and, and studies of complex systems. And so that leads to, uh, I think, a pescatarian diet, fish maybe a couple times a week, uh, plus vegan. Uh, I don't like the vegan. And, and, you know, in talking to lots of people that have been uh, studying the vegans, uh, uh, they, they tend to do worse than the vegetarians and wor the, worse than the pescatarians. Uh, and it have, may have to do with the immune system, may have to do with malnourishment, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't mean that you cannot be vegan and very healthy. It just means that most people that are vegan are probably, uh, uh, you know, kind of like the color restriction. They may have lots of benefits and lots of, lots of problems. Walter, one thing I like to ask our guests is uh, we're talking about health and health promotion and long life. I always like to ask people what their one guilty pleasure is. Uh, I have many. <laughs> you can share more than one if you want. <laughs> but if it was up to me, I would eat sweets all day long. You know? uh, but, but I'm very good. And so I narrow it down to now 85% cocoa chocolate every uh -huh. night. You know? So I, 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 uh, I'm happy with that. That's the thing, right? Uh, if you do it long enough uh, with the good food and you eat good food, then you start appreciating less and less the sort of the junk type of food. So now I'm very happy with that, and and I don't I don't feel as I used to. You know, there is something in Italy that's called panettone, right? Mm -hmm. So and it's a, lots of saturated fats, and but it, it's great. And yeah. so I used to dream of, of panettone all the time. Now, <laughs> now a little bit less, yeah. Uh, Walter, thank you so very much for being on with us. And uh, I think that uh, you've shared a lot of really valuable information that people are going to find very, very interesting. So thank uh, you. Pleasure, pleasure to meet you virtually, Walter. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, 
azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.